Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Shares in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway soared above the broader market for years. Say you'd invested $100 in Berkshire shares back in 1964. Today, you'd have about $2.5 million. Mr. Buffett and his lean team of advisors famously scooped up what they saw as promising but undervalued businesses, the type that would eventually bring big returns for his loyal shareholders. But lately, the Buffett way has come under pressure. Berkshire Hathaway is now a $740 billion organization, and it's holding on to more than $100 billion worth of cash, cash it would rather be putting to work. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene, and I have to say it feels really good to be back after a longer than expected hiatus. So thanks for sticking with us. Today on the show, we're looking at how Mr. Buffett might solve his cash dilemma. The FT's Eric Platt got a rare chance to sit down with Mr. Buffett, and he got a peek into the Berkshire Hathaway operation and how its 88-year-old chairman and CEO is thinking about the company's future. Eric, you went to Omaha, Nebraska earlier this spring to the Berkshire Hathaway headquarters, along with uh, two of our FT colleagues. What was that like? You know, we were downstairs in the lobby of a building that doesn't even have Berkshire's name on it. And we're waiting for his assistant to come down, reading an email from an editor. And who's walking down the lobby to pick us up? It's Warren Buffett, right? We're still all on one floor here, incidentally, at the headquarters. Do you mind if I just put this on your lapel? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. And so as a journalist, you kind of stop and you think, wow, this is either, you know, the most endearing meeting with an executive or this is really an, like smartly done PR. I think that's the best way to, to say it, right? Like, he knows the impact that will have on a group of three journalists sitting, waiting for him. He takes you up to this room. You get to the elevators. It's the only floor that has a lock on it. So he needs his ID card to kind of badge us in. We get up to the 14th floor where he sits. And it feels a bit like a college counselor's office. Tons of tchotchkes everywhere from every business they own, you know, little railroads or trucks. <laughs> Pardon me? How many people do you have here? Uh, 25 or so. It's, uh, it's different. I mean... It's a floor that probably hasn't been renovated in many years. The halls are really narrow. They are covered with memorabilia from the great stock market crash in the 1920s. The time he tried to invest in long-term capital management, this hedge fund that blew up ages ago, but the deal never crossed the line, and, and things like that. It's just this beautiful like time capsule, almost, of what he's lived through over the last 88 years. There are rooms filled with filing cabinets of 10Ks from companies. The office of one of the executives at the company, and there are only about two dozen executives, has like a Bloomberg terminal, tons of paperwork on the desk. And it's a bit disorganized. And Warren's telling us, oh, yeah, he could move, you know, several billion dollars around with, you know, click of a button. The CFO was 40 feet away. 
the fellow that handles 100 billion of, of short-term money and carries out all the orders 15 feet or 20 feet away. I tell him in the morning what we plan to do, and I sit in here occasionally looking at an iPad, and, and he, about every hour he reports what we've done so far, and if I want to change any instructions, yes. I can do it. And if that were to happen at like a J.P. Morgan or a Goldman Sachs, there are tons of compliance people involved. There's ton, like, it's not a single person at a Bloomberg terminal, you know. So it's it's kind of fascinating seeing it in action. Yeah, that part is really interesting. Can you explain why at Berkshire they can get away with just having, I guess, a guy with a Bloomberg terminal making these big trades all day? How uh, they get away without having the sort of level of internal oversight that big Wall Street banks are subject to? So this is the most fascinating question and one we tried to answer in our piece. And there are two reasons that we really came up with. One is that Berkshire has really not erred to regulators before. They really push their sense of well-meaning and that they're always going to do the right thing. At the beginning of every annual meeting, he shows a video of when he had to testify in front of Congress in the 1990s. But in the end, a spirit about compliance is as important or more so than words about compliance. He used to be a big shareholder in Solomon Brothers, and then there was this great bond trading issue, fraud at the company, and he became CEO temporarily. And so he, he's sitting before Congress and he says, you know, lose money for the firm and I will be understanding lose a shred of reputation for the firm, and I will be ruthless. And that's, to regulators, I think they've, they've really believed that, right? Especially as they're looking at other companies like Wells Fargo that are really struggling right now, or that who they believe have really crossed the line. And so because Berkshire pushes that view that they will always try to do the right thing, it's given them part of a pass. But the other reason, really interestingly, is they are the most overcapitalized, publicly traded company in the world. And by that, I mean... When you look at the sheer amount of retained earnings on the balance sheet, this is, you know, all the cash that they have built up over the years and it's held in treasuries or whatnot. It dwarfs any competitor, right? Because Berkshire doesn't pay dividends, because their buybacks have been so small, they have so much capital. And so, yes, if there was a big issue and they had to pay out 20 or 30 or $40 billion dollars, on a Friday, Warren Buffett likes to joke that on Monday, they could go out and still buy a business, that their fundamental business would not alter in the least bit. Before we go any further, Eric, can you explain what the Berkshire Hathaway business actually entails? So there are really three parts to the Berkshire empire. The first and perhaps the most important part, although it's become less so over the years, is the insurance business, right? So they own the Geico insurer. They own the Berkshire Hathaway reinsurance company. And what they do is like, so if you're a Geico policyholder, right, you pay a monthly premium for one day to get a payout if you're in a car accident. Well, that means Berkshire is amassing what they call float. It's basically cash coming in every day that they basically hold with the idea that one day they will have to pay this out. And they do this when they reinsure companies. They've entered contracts with AIG. They do this every day. So what that gives them is this huge firepower. And I think their float is over $120 billion right now. It's money that they think they one day could have to pay out. But in the meantime, they get to do something with that money. And what do they do? 
They buy businesses, which go into the second part of the empire. You know, things like the railroad, power utilities across the U.S., Dairy Queen, Fruit of the Loom, Seize Candy. These are businesses that they picked up with the money that they're generating from the insurance company and also the money that they're generating from their other businesses. The great power of the Berkshire model is that because you're keeping all this cash internal to the company, one, you're not paying certain state taxes on it that you might have otherwise paid if you were, you know, Coca-Cola putting out your earnings and distributing a dividend to shareholders. And the other thing is you can choose how you want to move this money around. And so then that takes us to the third thing with, because they haven't been able to buy businesses over the last few years, they've really struggled to find things at valuations that Buffett and his team likes. They've been buying up tons and tons of U.S. stocks. They've also been buying back their own shares for really the first time in quite some time. We were able to glimpse his calendar for the day, and there wasn't much on it besides, you know, seeing us, getting a haircut, having dinner. Because he said a few times that he's, you know, the calls aren't coming in as rapidly as he'd like, i.e. companies aren't calling him or advisors aren't calling him. That's what he needs. The company has more than $110 billion of cash. They traditionally don't use debt. And ideally, they like to keep $20 billion of cash on hand just in case there was a massive insurance payout they had to make. So they've got, what, $80, $90 billion ready to go to buy a company. Yeah, that is a huge amount of cash. I mean, I'm not sure many of us can think of how to actually put that to use. Eric, we found a clip of Warren Buffett at the annual meeting uh, earlier this year. It was just, just after you had gone up to see him. And he's answering a shareholder who had a question about Brexit. I was willing to spend three hours with the FT reporters uh, in the hope that that when they write about when they write the story that somebody someplace thinks of Berkshire that wouldn't otherwise think of it. And uh, we'd love to put more money uh, into the UK. I mean, if I get a call tomorrow and somebody uh, says, you know, I've got an ex billion dollar pound a company that I think might make sense for you to own and that I would like to actually have as part of Berkshire, you know, I'll, I'll get on the plane and, and uh, be over there, but I'll have to name. So he wants to buy in Brexit England. Uh, I guess he's thinking about a company that might be somewhat discounted. Uh, about 10 years ago, he did quite well backing companies and a few banks actually amid the financial crisis. Is that right? So in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, Berkshire did phenomenally well because, to his credit, right, they are what people in the insurance market call Friday night money. If you're Goldman Sachs and you're in the middle of the financial crisis and you need $5 billion, you can go to Warren Buffett and you can say, one, we need kind of your seal of approval, but we also need $5 billion. And he can write the check. So after the crisis, he was able to do that with a number of companies. Right? He did it with Goldman Sachs. He did it with Bank of America. He was able to come in and help finance a number of transactions. And he did them at yields that really any other lender could not get. They were able to buy a company like Precision Cast Parts for about $37 or $38 billion. It's an airplane parts manufacturer. They were able to pick up a lot of different businesses. But since Precision Cast Parts... Every reporter who follows Berkshire has just waited for the next one and the next one, and nothing has happened. 
And when you think about that, like, okay, Berkshire, yes, the insurance businesses keep throwing off cash, but actually cash becomes a drag at a certain point, right? Because they're investing in short-term treasuries that's yielding maybe 2.5%. If you're invested in the S&P 500, the dividend yield alone on that might be higher, plus the return on where the stocks are moving. So in more recent years, Berkshire has lagged the S&P 500. And it's raised this question of why invest in Berkshire when you could invest in the S&P at an index fund that costs, where costs have come down so spectacularly. And the reason for it is really, with Berkshire, maybe you're giving up some return, but in a crisis, they will outperform. In a crisis, because they have so much cash, the balance sheet, they call it a fortress, they are protected, they're a hedge, they won't drop as much as the S&P, it will be less volatile. And that's the reason why you're investing in it. Plus, to go to the meeting to get the wisdom of Uncle Warren. So he has to find new and, in some cases, creative ways to, to put this money that it has from the insurance business to work. But how has the investing environment changed, say, in the past 10 years or so? So you, you have to take a step all the way back and think about, like, how has the world changed, right? Since the crisis, we've had trillions of dollars pumped into the financial system from central banks. And so that suppressed yields. And so as traditional portfolio managers who were holding bonds got, you know, we're seeing their yields drop. They Some moved into stocks. And because they weren't getting great returns, they were pumping money into private equity. And everyone was trying to figure out how to make money. And so, you know, private equity has seen more than a trillion dollars of dried powder come in. And they're just sitting on this money. And when you say dry powder, you're talking about cash. Well, yeah. So it's cash. But it's really like treasuries or something else. Because cash itself is hard to hold. And so like if I'm Carlisle and I've raised a fund and I've got $5 billion of dry powder, it's like if I sign a deal tomorrow, the investors in that fund have to write that check to me the second I need it. There are also companies like SoftBank and the Vision Fund who have become huge backers of private companies who wouldn't traditionally be Berkshire candidates, right? But in doing so, they've pumped money into this private ecosystem of companies and bid up their valuations, allowed them to stay private for much longer, and eliminated them ever from the Berkshire universe, or made it much more difficult for Berkshire ever to get involved. And so when you put all this together with kind of like all the cash out there in the world, and all these investment funds waiting to go to work, it's just like so much tremendous money on the sidelines, which has bid up valuations of companies over the last decade, and has made it harder and harder for Berkshire to find something to kind of add to the portfolio. And instead, that's why you've seen them buy stocks, right? They've invested in Apple. Recently, they invested in Amazon, right? Which really, for many people, saw that as kind of the next turning point of the next step in Berkshire, right? Because this was a company that had long avoided technology companies. They avoided companies that were loss-making because what, like that doesn't fit the mold. They wanted to get companies that they really understood. And they didn't want to invest in something that in five years a challenger could pop up and suddenly Amazon's out. I think what's happened is they've had many, many years to watch Amazon mature. They've watched Google mature. They joke that, like, they own Geico. They were one of the earliest users of Google, and they saw how much money they were pumping into it and how much, how great of a return they were having on those advertising dollars. They should have invested in Google much earlier on because, actually, they had firsthand knowledge of how valuable it was. Of course, if something as extreme as this Internet development happens and you don't catch it, why... Other people are going to blow by you. 
He's saying we blew it. <laughs> That's Mr. Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger. They're answering a shareholder question at the uh, that same annual general meeting earlier this year. And so the shift into Amazon and Apple, I believe they invested in Apple first in 2016, it's showing that they are evolving, right? They're not just buying deep value companies. And when I say deep value, I mean stocks tend to be grouped either into what's called value or growth stocks. Growth stocks being like, you know, your companies that are sound to the core, but maybe they're trading, they're undervalued, right? They're not trading as well as they could. You know, Eric, I think we should talk about one of the investments that hasn't exactly gone as uh, the Buffett believers might have hoped. That's Berkshire Hathaway partnering with private equity group 3G on Heinz, which later merged with Kraft. What happened there? So Buffett had known Georgi Paulo Limon, uh, one of the co-founders of 3G Capital. It's this Brazilian private equity firm from their work on the Duracell board. And what he decided to do is that he was willing to back their investments, i.e., when they wanted to buy Heinz, he was willing to go 50-50 with them, leave the operations to 3G, and use that as a way to funnel their cash that was growing very rapidly on their balance sheet. And 3G brings a different taste to what Buffett normally does. They were very successful on Heinz. They cut jobs, they boosted profitability, the company was growing nicely. And that happened in 2013. And then in 2015, they decided to merge Heinz with Kraft, so where there would be a publicly traded portion of Kraft Heinz available to the investing public. But I believe it was like 51% at the time that Berkshire and 3G would own. 3G has since sold down its stake a bit. Berkshire is the largest shareholder of Kraft Heinz. But 3G continued to run the company operationally, or it was their people who were appointed to it. And what happened was they really focused on cost-cutting and boosting profitability first, and they did. They were able to get margins up nicely for the company, but they were kind of missing this bigger shift happening in the consumer goods space. And so while a lot of people had focused on, they were like, retailers are losing ground, it's the brands that are going to succeed, and Buffett is a big fan of brands, right? Like, he invests in Coca-Cola, he invests in American Express, these are like household names. What they missed was, yes, while Coca-Cola will maintain its spot at the top of beverage sales, maybe Jell-O is going to have tougher competition, right? Maybe Capri Sun won't be doing as well. And so that's really what they fought. And 3G had tried to raise prices on a number of goods. And what they missed was that actually a lot of the supermarkets and retailers weren't absorbing it well. Sales weren't increasing by the measure of the price increase. And they ceded ground to competitors. As that happened, you know, the retailers themselves were investing in their own brands. And it really positioned them poorly. And so Kraft Heinz has suffered massively. The stock prices dropped. They took a $15 billion impairment charge on their assets because they don't think the future profitability is as high as it used to be. That correspondingly meant Berkshire had to take a near $3 billion write down on their purchase of Kraft Heinz. And it, I think it left a sour taste in everyone's mouth. They're trying to fix the situation at Kraft Heinz, but it's been a struggle for them. And people who follow Berkshire don't think that turns off Berkshire from working with private equity companies in the future. There are a lot of questions on, do they do something again with 3G?
I suppose this brings to light two key questions then about Berkshire Hathaway and about Warren Buffett, right? One, that they have this unprecedented level of cash to try to invest smartly so that they can make that reasonable return. That's number one. And two, we've mentioned Mr. Buffett's age. His partner, Charlie Munger, is in his 90s. What do we know about who might be running the show next? They've named two people, Greg Abel, who runs the non-insurance businesses, so everything like he's in charge of the railroad and the power businesses and everything else under the sun, and Ajit Jain, who runs the insurance businesses as vice chairman. And so they're basically elevated to the level of Charlie Munger, and the view is that one of them will be the next chief executive of Berkshire Hathaway. He's also hired over the past decade two portfolio managers who are managing a larger and larger portion of the stock portfolio. I think they manage together now about 25 or 26 billion of the, I think it's like $190 billion portfolio. And interestingly, they've been the ones who've been pushing into Amazon or Apple or things like that to kind of get Warren acquainted with these companies before he takes much larger stakes. So actually, that's a lot of people are looking at this early small investment in Amazon, if that's uh, a prelude to Berkshire taking a much bigger stake in Amazon, which is why the, the shares rallied quite a bit after the news came out. And people are trying to dissect that if this is a new step change in the company or just a kind of a, you know, a slight tweak in the investment philosophy. And if that's a good or a bad thing, right? Like, ultimately, that's what it comes to. Is this the right move for Berkshire? And I spoke to shareholders over the weekend in Omaha where they were saying, like, had very different views on this. Some were adamant that, you know, investment in Amazon doesn't fit with the core of, you know, these companies that do good things like Coca-Cola. Other shareholders were saying technology is a part of the economy. If you are excluding this, you're excluding out a huge swath of the investable universe. And that's not an option for Berkshire, right? Because when you have $740 billion in assets, $1 billion investment, which is a huge sum of money, does not move the needle at all. And so that's why it's really important for these managers that they've hired to take at least the first step in pushing Berkshire's portfolio. I know I'm not the first person to ask what I'm about to ask you, but I'm curious to hear what shareholders in Omaha that you spoke to had to say about this question. And that is, if in a year when, say, Berkshire Hathaway shares underperform the S&P 500, underperform the broader market... If the reason people are still sticking with Berkshire Hathaway is because of getting to hear that wisdom of Uncle Warren, getting to the you know the annual meeting in Omaha, just having that inside access. I'm curious then, what is the draw to Berkshire Hathaway when Mr. Buffett is no longer in the picture? I think that's something everyone wonders. What happens when Buffett is no longer there? And there's not a good answer to it yet. There's not a good reason why you would, if you're coming the annual meeting if you're investing because your parents invested in Berkshire Hathaway and it did so well for them for you to necessarily stay in the investment, right? I mean, Greg Abel and Ajit Jane do not have the same personality that Warren or Charlie do, at least the personality that they've shown us, right? They've been very closed door. They've not done much media. They've avoided the spotlight. And so I think they have time to build that public-facing personality and that brand because ultimately the Warren brand is, it's invaluable. And it's really like, it is a core part of the business. You you probably keep investing or you don't immediately sell your shares because at the end, 
on a day-to-day basis, maybe not much has changed. There will be mourning at the company, right? But dozens of business lines are still operating day in, day out, still producing cash rate. Like Geico is still growing the number of policies it has in force. That itself doesn't change. You, The questions it raises are then, you know, does one of these two men, many think it might be Greg Abel, do they change the strategy of the company? And we haven't gotten any sense of that yet. You know, you could say there's a lot of pressure in following me, but I, knowing the people who are possibilities to do it, they'll be 100% fine for it. And they, Warren has and, called and, them, and, you know, they, I think it's like the finest managers or the greatest managers within the company. I like, I like, the, I like, I like their character and I like their brains and I like, I like how they see themselves. They are not people that want to have more money than anybody on the Forbes list or anything like that. They want to, they want to be rich. But they're, they're all, they're already rich. I mean, <laughs> you know, as a practical matter, I mean, they, they, they don't need more money. They don't want more money, and they'll love the idea of running something special. And and what about that cash? It's really like the best worst problem to have, if that makes any sense. Given there are other companies that are like struggling to raise money for Berkshire, it's this overabundance of money and what to do with it. They started doing buybacks in the third quarter, and they did just under a billion. And then it slowed in the fourth quarter, and people got very nervous, like, oh, they're not actually committed to doing buybacks. And then he was doing an interview, and he said, well, actually, we slowed the buybacks because we got very close to a deal that would have used a lot of cash, and that's why. But then the deal fell apart at the last minute. So the other view is that this cash eventually will get put to work. It's just a matter of when. They will find a company to buy. It's just... Are we waiting for the next stock market drop and for them then to come in? Or is it just that maybe they will pay a little bit more for a company? Or I don't think either of the successors would really change things. I think they would face resistance if there was any kind of drastic change. I think for a long while they will be trying to follow this playbook that's been laid out for how they should be making investment decisions. And I think that's what a lot of Buffett and Munger have done is try to lay out the like, hey, we built this great company. You're going to have to take the reins eventually. It's more fun to run a business than it is to run a portfolio over time. If I just closed the shades and came in every day and had some marvelous system for making above average returns, there's really not a whole lot of purpose in that besides that beyond a point. I mean, it's useful to give it to philanthropy. It has no utility to me or my family or anything like that. The business has something. Berkshire is something special to our directors, to many of our shareholders, certainly to me personally. And it's, it's in a way, it's an example of something that can be done our way, meaning mine and Charlie's. I mean, it, and it can go on a long time after. And it's interesting, he said, like, you know, he's not fearful of his death. If he got hit by a bus tomorrow, the board would know exactly who to name mm. as CEO. So it's been decided. We should add that uh, Mr. Buffett has recently committed about $10 billion to help U.S. petroleum producer Occidental clinch a deal to buy its rival Anadarko. I guess the question is, $10 billion is merely a fraction of the 80 or 90 some odd billion that they've got ready to deploy. Thanks, Eric. Gladly. You can read much more from Eric on Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway at FT.com. 
and some housekeeping. For the next few months, we're going to be releasing new episodes of Behind the Money every two weeks. We'll be back to our regular weekly release schedule later in the year. But if you've got any feedback, story ideas, or questions, please get in touch. You can drop me a line on Twitter. I'm at Amy P. Keen. Special thanks to Laura Sim for producing this episode with me. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.